Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. What a huge end of the week it was this week. Since we last spoke with Van for the week on Wednesday, a lot has happened in Australian politics and around the world. We're going to cover Angus Taylor on Insiders. We're going to talk about Jim Chalmers and a number of pre-budget announcements. Of course, we're going to talk about Liz Truss. And we'll also touch on the Lydia Thorpe scandal and a bit more broadly about what it means for Australian politics. First of all, though, let's talk about the good news because it is a Sunday and we'd like to have some positive stories. Jim Chalmers has announced $33 billion will be invested in social security in the upcoming budget. A third of this will go to aged pensioners, a third will go to job seekers, and the rest will lift other payments as well. The fine details of this have not yet been released. It'll obviously come out in the budget, which is due this week. It's a huge step forward, and it will go a long way to dealing with the rising cost of living for those Australians on the lowest incomes. A huge step in the right direction. It's not the only big announcement that Jim Chalmers made. He also talked about the NDIS review and how Bill Shorten, as Minister for NDIS, is putting people with disability at the centre of that review, but also that the focus is on the value for money that it generates. We know that the NDIS is an investment. Every dollar that's invested returns $2.25 into the economy. The problem with the investment at the moment is the ticket clippers, the overcharging, the payday lenders, the people who are extracting value out of the system, out of the pockets of workers, out of the pockets of people with disability, and sending it offshore to foreign private equity or using it to buy their multi-million dollar harbourside mansions. Yes, Peter Scott, I'm talking about you and Mabel. Because frankly, that is atrocious. Yes, we've seen the exposés that show organised crime is a problem. Yes, we've heard stories about fake charging and fraud, but the integrity of the system, the integrity of any government system is how well it is regulated. And clearly at the moment, the NDIS still has too many cowboys in it for a quick buck or in some cases in it for a long-term buck. And of course, Putting people with disability at the centre is absolutely key, but recognising that when you've got a multi-billion dollar government-funded program, you've got to have proper regulations, proper transparency and proper accountability, that's also very important. Further good news, $560 million will be made available for Indigenous uh, organisations Uh, domestic violence support and housing support. Organisations will be able to apply for this. This will be a pool of funding. This was announced today as well. And the paid parental leave scheme is being extended uh, as is childcare to an additional 3,700 people. Now, this was originally erroneously reported by the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age as including hundreds of thousands of high-income earners. Now, the budget is next week. Numbers are going to be flying thick and fast for the next seven to 10 days, probably even longer. It's so important that journalists get the numbers right. 
And if they make a mistake, correct them very quickly. Because fundamentally, the difference between an extra 1,000 people and an extra 120,000 people is in the scope of billions of dollars. So, of course, the Sydney Morning Herald uh, was called out on this by Paul Carp from The Guardian, uh, Greg Jericho as well. Lots of people online found this, jumped on it. My understanding is they've changed the online version and good on them for changing it. But I would just encourage people to use some common sense, look at the numbers. If the number doesn't make sense, look for other sources. You can always contact us here at the week on Wednesday because, frankly, we're more than happy to look at those sorts of things. Of course, I want to also say that this week, huge activity, huge activity on New South Wales rail. The workers turning off machines, taking real action, commuters and travellers getting free travel. And this comes at the same time as we know the Albanese Labor government is going to bring forward changes to our workplace laws to give workers a bit more power in the economy. So important. What the RTBU, that's the Rail, Tram and Bus Union, Unions New South Wales are doing, so important. We should all be showing our support and solidarity for them. And of course, if you're not already a member of your union, you need to join up now. Go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. That's W-O-W for week on Wednesday. Because Angus Taylor, in his interview on Insiders Today, made the point that he doesn't want, and I quote, toxic industrial relations systems. What he means by that is he doesn't want workers to have power in the system. This is, and Van and I talked about this on Wednesday, fundamentally the system is not working the way it should, even by the terrible ideological frameworks that people like Angus Taylor claim they believe the system is not working. They claim that when unemployment is low, wages will go up. When labour supply is in shortage, wages will go up. When productivity goes up, wages will go up. The reality is unemployment is near record lows. There is shortage of skills. There is high productivity, but wages are being cut. Their model does not work. It's broken. It is a fundamentally flawed system because it fails to recognise that there are power, power issues at play, the power of the company to split workers into smaller groups, the power of the company to take legal action against unionised workforces, as we've seen in New South Wales, the power of executives to direct people, the power to hire and fire, the power to put people on casual, labour hire, sham contracts, the power to deny people the hours they need, the power to effectively lock people into needing multiple jobs to pay the bills. These are all power dynamics that make the model that says when unemployment goes down, wages will go up, when productivity goes down, wages will go up. Those power dynamics are not in the model because they're real world and they shift and they change and they require laws to balance them out. Now, Angus Taylor and some of the big business 
lobbyists who are against things like multi-employer bargaining, who are against things like gig economy reforms, the kind of reforms that Labor in New South Wales and Labor in Victoria have committed to, they're against those reforms because they like the broken system. They want profits to take more and more out of the economy. They want corporations to get a larger and larger share of what we produce. That's what's been happening for the last decade. It's only going to stop when we change the laws to give workers the power to demand better conditions. And we see this in industries where workers do have power, where there is a finite capacity for employers to exercise power over workers. This is why the docks are always such an important part of our industrial relations system. It's a bottleneck. It's a point where the employers and the workers have to come to agreement because there's no way for the employers to get around the docks. It's why Alan Joyce has been so determined to smash worker power at the airline and at the airports because if workers have power in those key points, they can get their fair share, even with bad laws. It's harder with bad laws. It can be almost impossible if you don't have those choke points of power. But with better laws, we will see rising wages in early education, rising wages in aged care, better service delivery in those sectors. We will see a return to wage growth in this country. Now, Angus Taylor doesn't want any of that. He's gone on Insiders and been very clear that he opposes all of those things. In fact, Angus Taylor's performance on Insiders was so disgraceful that if you haven't joined your union already, you need to rush out and join because he has learned nothing. He is the memento of Australian politics. He wakes up every day and forgets the outcomes of his ideological crusade from the day before. And what does that mean? It means that he wants more gas, more gas, frack, baby, frack. That's Angus Taylor's solution. Angus Taylor doesn't want to do anything about the fact that it doesn't matter how much gas we produce, we're pumping it into a global market where the price is set by factors well beyond our control. The fix to the gas crisis isn't just to frack more gas, it's to change our connection to the global market. It's to reserve some gas here in Australia, which again, the union movement has called for. But it's also to reduce our reliance on gas, which again, the union movement has called for, which again, the Albanese Labor government, the government of Victoria under Dan Andrews, even the governments in Tasmania under Liberals, and even in parts of New South Wales, they have recognised we need to reduce our reliance on fossil fuels and the global market for them. And we can do that by increasing wind power, including offshore wind. We can do that by increasing hydroelectricity, which given the state of flooding in much of the country at the moment, clearly we have plenty of that to go around. But also improving the connections between markets, bringing Tasmania into the mainland market improving the interconnection between Victoria and New South Wales, building battery capacity. Victoria has committed to being the world's largest 
storage of solar batteries. These are huge improvements. And of course, this week we saw Victoria commit to establishing a state electricity commission and undoing the privatized damage of the Kennett government. Angus Taylor is opposed to this. He asked, he asked the question of David Spears, why does the government need to invest in these things when these are regulated markets and there is clearly private interest in being part of them? Well, because Angus, we're dealing with the wreckage of a privatized market right now. The transition is more chaotic than it needs to be in Victoria, New South Wales, and much of the country because of the privatized nature of the markets. In Queensland and in Western Australia, where there are large government parts of the system, they are able to make the transition more smoothly. They're able to give worker guarantees. They're able to have lower power prices. Angus Taylor, Angus Taylor is advocating for higher prices because he is advocating for a profit incentive in our energy market. Angus Taylor doesn't care about energy bills for ordinary working people. He doesn't care about the energy bills of pensioners or the unemployed or any other Australian. What Angus Taylor wants is he wants privatised profit out of what is an essential public good. He went on Insiders and he said that by asking that question. And this is what they always do, the Angus Taylors of the world. These schoolboy prefects who've been left behind in parliament ask their ideology as a question rather than putting it as a statement. He asks, why should government invest when the private sector wants to? Because it's cheaper, because the public will own it, because it means lower power prices, because it's a more efficient market. Those are the answers to that question, Angus. He asks them of David Spears, who of course is not going to give those answers because he's asking a question himself. What Angus Taylor should say, because he's supposed to be putting forward a position, is that what he wants is a privatised market. He wants private companies to control the price of electricity. He wants private companies to extort subsidies from government to upgrade and maintain transmission. That's what they were doing for a decade under the Morrison government. Make no mistake, Angus Taylor, Angus Taylor is on the side of energy companies. And he continues to push this ideological vandalism. It's not just a question of climate change and air quality and our ability to live on this planet, although those are important things. It's also an ideological, political, economic question. And Angus Taylor's ideological politics are to give away, to give away billions of dollars of taxpayer money, of our money, to private corporations, many of whom, by the way, in the energy sector, are partly or fully owned by the governments of other countries, governments who have the foresight to realise that energy infrastructure is fundamental to the good operation of their own societies and have seen the opportunity presented by the ideological idiocy of people like Angus Taylor to invest in our country and to take subsidies from our government to do so.
Angus Taylor is out of his depth. His party is a wreck. It is an ideological footnote in the pages of paleontology. They are dinosaurs who, quite frankly, would add more value to our economy if they themselves were barrels of oil rather than continuing to advocate for the oil and gas and coal burning that they seem so obsessed by trying to make us do. Fundamentally, Angus Taylor was part of a government that wrecked the Australian economy. They baked in budget deficits. They wasted billions. They allowed private profit at the expense of the public good. The first budget of the Labor government will try and undo some of this, but it can't do it all at once. You can't undo a decade of damage in a single budget speech. It will take time. And that's going to be frustrating for a lot of us. I know it's frustrating for me. Van and I talk about it all the time. We've made the point about the stage three tax cuts. Of course, Angus Taylor defended them again today on Insiders. Well, that debate's not going to go away. And it's not going to go away because fundamentally, we know they're unaffordable. You can't give tax cuts to the wealthiest people at the same time as you have massive budget deficits and huge amounts of debt, a trillion dollars worth of liberal debt. The interest on that will be over $30 billion a year. We're talking about the entire cost of what we spend on defence capability in interest payments. Why? Because they just handed out money to mates. They gave away valuable resources and valuable assets. Australia makes a tiny, tiny fraction on the export of our natural resources in terms of gas and oil than countries like Qatar and Norway. If we used those resources, taxed those resources the same way those two countries did, we would not have a budget deficit. That's an amazing, an amazing thought that all we had to do was adopt the same policies as countries as diverse as Norway and Qatar, and we, the people of Australia, would have benefited. Instead, Angus Taylor and his mates, Angus Taylor and his mates made sure that the energy companies profited. The energy companies have had record, huge profits, windfall profits, wartime profiteering level profits. And yet Angus Taylor goes on insiders and says they should be given even more access, even more capacity to profit from the pockets of working people. The man is a disgrace. His party is a disgrace. But of course, he's not the only one. This is an ideological, bizarre cabal that exists right around the world. We've just seen Liz Truss lose the prime ministership of Great Britain after 45 days because of her insane, insane commitment to this ideology. She tanked the economy of Britain, an economy that was already very shaky, by blindly following this kind of ideological obsession. Tax cuts above all else. Angus Taylor made the bizarre 
the bizarre position on Insiders that Liz Truss wasn't in trouble because of her multi-billion pound unfunded tax cut, but because she had committed to reducing energy prices for everyday British people. Nobody else, nobody else thinks that's why Liz Truss lost the confidence of the markets, lost the confidence of the people, lost the confidence of her own party, and lost the prime ministership of Great Britain. Britain's shortest ever serving prime minister lost power because her economic policy was not sensible. It was not logical. It was not based in reality. It had nothing to do with providing some subsidies for the massively high energy costs in Great Britain. It had everything to do with smashing the tax system and giving more money to bankers and the very wealthy in Great Britain. Angus Taylor, however, doesn't seem to understand that. Angus Taylor puts forward the view on insiders. This is the man who wants to be treasurer of Australia, by the way, puts forward the view that really Liz Truss's problem was that she was going to give handouts to pensioners on their energy bills. And you can't do that if you can't fund it. Well, look, Angus, it's true. You've got to be able to fund your programs. And a big part of funding your programs is making sure you tax things properly, you giant pillock. It is just phenomenal, the ideological blinders that go on with people like Angus Taylor and Liz Truss. They simply cannot grasp that 40 years of demonstrable failure of their ideological position means that people have had enough. Markets have had enough. It doesn't work. Stop pushing it. You can cut taxes for the rich all you like, but it's not going to trickle down. It's just going to make rich people richer. And pretending otherwise is not something the rest of us are still prepared to do. It's not something markets are prepared to do. They know that, yes, rich people will get richer if you cut their taxes. But no, the economy will not grow. It will not help. It will not deal with your inflation problems. It will simply worsen inequality. And in fact, it will weaken your overall economic position because you won't be able to do things like, oh, I don't know, invest in and reduce the cost of electricity. So Liz Truss is gone. Angus Taylor remains. Thankfully, he remains in opposition. Britain will have chaos once again. As Van says, we're watching an empire vote itself into oblivion. First with Brexit, then with Boris Johnson, now Liz Truss, and who knows, maybe Boris Johnson again, or Rishi Sunak might come up. Maybe one of them will have the decency to call a general election, but I doubt it. We'll have two more years, which is their statutory rules at this point, of Tory misrule. And the British people will just have to remember, and frankly, given the kind of winter they're about to have and the kind of energy prices they're likely to have to wear for the next two years, I don't think they'll have a hard time remembering the chaos, the death, the cost, and the confusion of Tory rule when the next general election does eventually arrive. Now, I want to end today talking a little bit about 
the Lydia Thorpe scandal. Green Senator from Victoria, Lydia Thorpe, former Deputy Greens leader in the Senate, of course, resigned as Deputy Greens leader in the Senate at the request of Adam Bant this week. This happened because of a number of things. Firstly, Lydia Thorpe was engaged in an intimate relationship with the former president of the Rebels Motorcycle Club. Her partner, possibly former partner now, posted on social media that he found out about what he called or what has been called the affair via the media and that that was a very difficult thing for him to find out. Lydia Thorpe continued to have a friendship with the former president of the Rebels Motorcycle Club during her time on the Commonwealth Law Enforcement Committee, a committee that, amongst other things, looks at the activity of outlaw motorcycle clubs, one of which is the Rebels Motorcycle Club. Lydia Thorpe was advised by her staff that she should declare both to Adam Bant and to the chair of the committee that she had a personal relationship with the individual who was the former president of the Rebels Motorcycle Club. His brother had already been deported to New Zealand as a result of his criminal activity, and they believed there was the potential for there to be a perceived conflict of interest. This is where the story takes a turn, because Lydia Thorpe didn't declare her personal relationship with this individual. She chose not to do so. The staff told the staff of Adam Bant, who chose not to tell Adam Bant. So now we're getting a bit more murky. Lydia Thorpe did receive confidential briefings about the Rebels Motorcycle Club. Lydia Thorpe did raise issues about members of the Rebels Motorcycle Club who were in detention while she was on that committee. One of the people in particular that she raised issues about was released from detention and was not deported because he was Indigenous. You might say that's a good outcome. I would agree that's a good outcome. We shouldn't be deporting Indigenous Australians to other countries. It's illegal and immoral. The lack of declaration does cast a pall over that situation because it suggests not that anything untoward was done, and I'm not for a moment suggesting that Lydia Thorpe shared confidential information with anyone. That is not the suggestion. But there is certainly a question mark about whether information was passed from the former president of the Rebels Motorcycle Club to Lydia Thorpe to allow her to better pursue that case. Now, you might say, well, the outcome of that case means that that was a good thing, and maybe it was a good thing. But the way things happen matters. Lydia Thorpe met with the former president of the Rebels Motorcycle Club, not in Parliament House, but in a park. It's been reported that her staff asked where she was when some papers had arrived and she was not present to receive them. She told them she had gone to meet this gentleman 
in a park outside Parliament House. Now, anyone who's been to Parliament House will know that in order to get access to the office areas, you've got to be signed in. Your name, your ID is captured in the system. Parliament would have had a record that he had come to visit Lydia Thorpe. Now, I'm not saying that Lydia Thorpe did anything wrong. What I am saying is that it adds it adds to the cloud over the whole scenario that she chose to go and meet him in a park, that she chose not to declare her personal association with him, that she chose to be the person who pursued a case on behalf of a member of the Rebels Motorcycle Club, and that even in her resignation, she stressed that she was asked to resign by Adam Bant and that she provided him that resignation at his request and that she made mistakes. She offers no apology and perhaps she thinks she's done nothing wrong. Certainly there are people online who believe she's done nothing wrong. And certainly there are people online who point out that there is a double standard here. That Lydia Thorpe has been asked to resign from her position as deputy leader in the Senate, while people like Angus Taylor, who you've just heard me rant about for 15 minutes, who have been embroiled in scandal after scandal, continue to hold leadership positions in the Liberal Party. That Susan Lay, who was forced to step off cabinet because of her own misuse of parliamentary resources and her own lack of uh, declaration in regards to her own assets, is now deputy leader of the Liberal Party. Sure, absolutely. There is a double standard. The double standard is that if you claim to be something, you have to be it. If you claim to believe in accountability and transparency, then you have to show it. You don't get to say, we want more transparency. We want more accountability. We want more open government. We want there to be more declarations, more openness about the interaction between senators and MPs and the people that they meet and advocate for, the people who lobby them. We want total transparency of all of that. You don't get to say all of that and then not do it yourself, even if other people won't. You know, that's the great challenge. The great challenge of being on the left is that we have a different set of standards. There are numerous, numerous people who I know who have had to stand down. I think about someone like Sam Dastiari, who is a friend of mine, who I have a great deal of love and affection for, and only really got to know him very well after he finished being a senator. I look at someone like that, who paid back the money, who admitted he made a mistake, and who resigned from the Senate over a $1,200 gift. That is living your own standards. Now, I don't think Alan Tudge should be in Parliament. I campaigned against him. I gave donations to the Labor candidate against him. I'm happy to declare those. 
I don't think Angus Taylor should be Treasurer of Australia. I don't think Susan Lay should be the Deputy Prime Minister or even Deputy Leader of the Liberal Party. I think there are, I don't think Peter Dutton should be the leader of a major political party. I think there are huge questions over his integrity. I think there are massive questions over his interaction with donors. The, all one needs to do is look at the, the car commercial that Peter Dutton made and the Friendly Geordies video that explores Peter Dutton's relationship with that company and its owners to have serious questions about Peter Dutton's fitness to hold public office. But having questions about those things, holding those beliefs, thinking those people are not of suitable character to hold those positions doesn't excuse the actions of Lydia Thorpe. It doesn't, not in any way, shape, or form. It is possible to believe that we hold a standard even if others won't hold themselves to it, they're our standards. They're the things that we believe. And I'm sure Lydia Thorpe will do many positive things as a senator. And I'm sure this debate will continue to rage. And I'm sure anyone who listens to this who's already defending Lydia Thorpe will throw all sorts of accusations at me about this particular statement. But the reality is Lydia Thorpe did the wrong thing. She was advised to declare it and she didn't. She didn't sign him into parliament and she met him in a park that raises suspicions about the nature of the interaction. Her long-term partner at the time claims that he found out about the so-called affair via the media. And she pursued an issue about a member of the Rebels Motorcycle Club without declaring to the committee that she had a personal relationship with its leadership. Those are four, four things that are wrong, that are mistakes, that breach the standards that the Greens claim they want to see other people uphold. That's all I'm going to say about the Lydia Thorpe situation. I'm sure it will continue to play out. Don't forget this week is, of course, the federal budget. It is a huge week for Australian politics. As Van and I discussed on Wednesday's episode, there's also going to be the first and second readings of the new workplace relations bills. We know big business don't like them. We know there's stuff in there about multi-employer bargaining. We know there's stuff in there about pay secrecy clauses. We know there's a lot of stuff in there to try and lift the pay and conditions of working people and close the gender pay gap. It'll be interesting to see what comes out. We'll have more on that in the coming weeks ahead. And until then, remember, be kind to yourself and to each other.